is depression funny? Yes. How so? Everything is funny. Something wrong with me, I've got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? I'm John Moe, and this is The Hilarious World of Depression. On this program, we talk to comedians who have dealt with the disease of clinical depression. Comedians make a living talking about things in a way folks can relate to and even laugh about. And if we can laugh at a monster, then we take away some of the monster's power. If we can share something we have in common, we won't feel so alone, and that's when we can start to feel better, which is the goal with any disease, to feel better, to make this gross, heavy thing let up even a little. And it's hard to know how sometimes. Meds work, but not always. Therapy, sometimes, for some people. Exercise, mindfulness, yoga, religion, church. You you try what you can. Or you self-medicate. Booze, pot, street drugs. You numb yourself up to get out of your own head. Generally, it does not go well. Good, how are you? This is Brad, my engineer. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I went to Brooklyn, New York to talk to a comic who has tried a lot of self-medication over the years. Uh, My name is Sam Grittner. We are currently in my apartment that I share with four lovely roommates in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Sam Grittner is a stand-up comedian and comedy writer originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. He was diagnosed with depression as an adolescent and was put on Prozac. He's also been a comedy nerd his whole life. Old stand-up records, Monty Python videos that he watched obsessively. Sam was a middle child and found that getting laughs was a good way to get attention and that he was pretty good at getting laughs. In high school, Sam joined a sketch comedy and improv group as a freshman. The rest of the people in the group were all seniors. It was a big deal. And the response that he got on stage gave him a high. I would get big laughs. And uh, it was just, it was the first time in my life where I was like, okay, like this, this doesn't only fit, it feels great. And it's, it's healthy. You know, I've done so many drugs in my life and there is nothing better to me there's no greater high than having a good set or getting an applause break there's just nothing like it um i don't care if you laugh at my jokes i've been doing stand-up i need it uh, please do my lifeblood i've been doing stand-up comedy for over a decade now though my dad gave me the best advice that i've ever had when i told him i was going to do stand-up he said sam just remember this there's no such thing as a bad audience, only sons that should have gone to college. <laughs> Sam says he went off Prozac at age 17 and then started in on other kinds of drugs, beginning with marijuana. I was so curious about everything after I tried pot, because basically in the household I, I grew up in, uh, if you did pot, uh, you were a bad person. And uh, it basically was, if you did any drug, you're a bad person. So. I found the equivalency of, well, I tried pot, so I'm a bad person. I'm already a bad person, so, well, I'll try cocaine. I'll try ecstasy. And then eventually, uh, I promised myself my my 
up in, in my 20s, I said, I, the, the line I will never cross, I will never, never smoke crack and I will never do heroin because that's what, that's what a drug addict does while well, I'm doing Oxycontin in the bathroom of a TGI Fridays and saying, I'm not a drug addict. I'm just, I'm young and having fun. Sam gets out of high school, skips college, gets a day job and becomes a stand-up around Minneapolis. And around this time, he develops a lingering stomach pain, still has the depression to deal with as well. And so he seeks relief outside the medical establishment. I was uh, very much addicted to opiates on top of the fact that I was smoking pot daily, drinking uh, heavily during work before and after. Um, And then I started, somebody at work turned me on to Percocet and Vicodin. And then I was taking 10 a day, 20 a day. And then eventually they said, well, just, you know, you can do that with this one pill called Oxy. And then they taught me how to suck the coating off and crush it up and snort it. And that way you don't have the time release. And when I started doing that, that was the first time in my 20s that I felt real relief from my stomach pain. And so uh, I did that. And then at 24 is when I went to see my, my dealer. And he said that the person that they were getting from uh, had to keep start taking them herself uh, because the cancer had spread to the bones in her body. And I was like, that is so selfish. And, uh, you know, just such a twisted mind I had. And so he, I was like, well, I need something. And he pulled out uh, some crack and I smoked that. And, you know, I said I'd never do it. And then within five minutes, I folded. And then I was so high, I said, I need something to even me out. He comes back two minutes later with a mirror. And I'm like, it looks like cinnamon, but uh, I knew it was heroin. And so I sniffed that. And then from that, from 24 to 25, I would use $100. I was spending $200 a day, 100 on each. And I am only alive because I have an aversion to needles. I've never shot up. I would definitely have OD'd, given the chance. Sam starts to like the party after the show more than the show. Eventually, he figures, skip the show, let's get right to the party. And before long, Sam Grittner goes from being a comic who uses drugs to a drug addict who used to be a comedian. And though this may not shock you, street drugs don't cure depression. Uh, When I did do drugs, I did heroin. I did heroin for uh, a year and a half straight. I highly recommend not doing it. I lost friends, I lost family, I lost uh, jobs, but the absolute worst part of the entire experience, you guys, I didn't even learn how to play jazz. Once the drugs were gone, I was just, I was still left with all my emotions, and then the fact that I knew deep down I'm just using these to escape, but I didn't want to do the work uh, of going to a therapist, of going to some sort of recovery program, anything like that. 200 bucks a day on drugs is not an easy pace for a comedian in Minneapolis to maintain. You can sign up for only so many credit cards. Sam says he kicked heroin and crack cold turkey, moving in with his parents for two months. And ultimately, he decided that he needed a change of scenery. So he moves to New York to recommit to comedy, sublets a friend's apartment. But... You know, it's not a particular drug that makes you an addict. 
having a predisposition to depend on substances makes you an addict. There were 30 bars within like a six block radius from where I was staying. And so, you know, I'd, I'd kicked heroin and I'd kicked crack. And so the addict and alcoholic mind will, of course, bubble up and say, well, since you no longer do those terrible things, and those were terrible things, which is funny. You didn't say that before while I was doing those, but okay. Um, it's fine if you drink. It's fine if you smoke pot. If you want to do cocaine occasionally, if you want to do ecstasy occasionally, all those things are fine. And so I moved here and I said, you know, I'm going to stay sober. After two days, I was drinking. Uh, I was a regular at some bar that I can't even remember the name of. Uh, and then I was smoking pot within four or five months. And then over the last, over the course of the next five years, I would do cocaine, do ecstasy. Um, and that's also the, I, I slowly cut those out of my life. And then it was just becoming a blackout drunk and smoking pot nonstop. Now, for the next several years, Sam works on his comedy and carries around the weight of his addictions. Does stand-up, makes videos, works with friends, drinks like a fish, smokes a ton of pot. One day, he says he woke up after a blackout drunk binge, having lost 350 bucks in cash from his job waiting tables. And that was it for drinking. Sam has this addictive brain that commands him to do things, which sucks. But he is also able to sometimes take control and make healthier choices, vetoing the addictions, basically. It's kind of a battle between him and his brain. Eventually, he is left with comedy and a steady stream of marijuana and the depression, which hasn't really been fully addressed. We'll get to what happens next in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe knocking down the power of depression a bit. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover if they get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org. You can take the pledge right there to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. So, Sam Gritner, comedian. Struggles with addiction for years. Pills, booze, crack, heroin. Gets it all in the rearview mirror, except a whole lot of pot. Which brings us to one morning in May of 2016. I believe the day was May 25th. And um, I woke up. I got showered. Uh, I was getting ready to go to work. And uh, a voice inside my head, the, the negative voices that I have inside my head just took over and uh, told me that today was the day that I was going to finally kill myself. 
I had written suicide notes before. I had two other minor attempts that I would really call cries for help. Um, with pills? Uh, one was, yeah, one was with pills and one with, was with uh, cutting, um, but not to the degree that, that this, this entailed. I'd done research with Google about how much one needed to take to make sure I didn't wake up. Um, and uh, I won't go into the amounts, but I took copious amounts of uh, Klonopin and Ambien. Where'd you get them? Uh, I was prescribed them at the time, but I had been hoarding them for uh, the last couple months and uh, prior to May. And there was no, the thing that still baffles me is that there was no big trigger for me. And that's, that's you know, at this point, I'd, I'd stopped drinking three and a half or four years ago. I'd hit a rock bottom and I just made up my mind one day and it stuck. But then I continued to smoke pot. And the last for the preceding months from, from May backwards, the last eight months, basically, I was smoking pot all day, every day. I'd come home from work and just isolate. It was just my brain it went on autopilot and it said, you know, you've been talking about suicide for years. You hate your life. You, I haven't done anything that's brought me joy uh, in almost a year and uh, I look around at everybody else and, you know, the brain starts to compare. And uh, I say, you know, all my, all my peers have gotten amazing jobs. And, you know, of course, they, they worked for it. They earned it. I don't want to think about that. But, um, and they're in relationships. And they're, they, they're acting like normal adults do. And I will never, in my mind, it was, you're never going to be happy You've been unhappy for a very long time. Uh, you don't deserve to be happy. Uh, and so why, w at this point, why stick around? You woke up with this feeling. Yes. And so I texted all of my family members individually. I just said, I love you, which is not out of the norm, which is really scary for how you know, I didn't want to set it off. I know how, it, what will raise red flags. And uh, I just sat down on my bed for about 20 minutes debating whether or not I should do it. And then finally I just said, screw it, I'm gonna do it. Here in this apartment? In this apartment, on that, in my bedroom. So you're, on, you're sitting on your bed. You have these sleeping pills that you've hoarded you want this pain to go away. Do, do you ever think in that process, well, I'm not going to feel relief from this because I'm, I'm going to be dead. I, I definitely had those thoughts, but, uh, the negative, the negative ones overrided them. Okay. Um, and then, then you took them. With then the I took them. Glass of water. Yep. Yeah. I had, I tried to uh, do it with alcohol about four months prior to that, and that was really a, a bizarre moment for me. I, I was going to, I wrote a note, and uh, I had, once again, I hoarded pills, and uh, I went to, I poured a big 
big glass of vodka and I went, I put a bunch of pills in the first round, I guess, in my mouth and I couldn't drink the alcohol. And, uh, you hadn't had any for years by that point. Yeah. And my brain said, once again, it's this really in- weird thing where my brain said, oh, hey, you can kill yourself. That's fine. But you made a promise to yourself that you're never going to drink alcohol again. So you can't do it with this. And so I spit out the pills and I realized I was like, what am I doing? You know, I, I do want to live in this moment. So in this attempt in May, on May 25th, you have the water, you take the pills all at once, or are there several rounds that you take? Uh, it took three handfuls. What, uh, what are you thinking after you do that? I was trying not to think about my family uh, because you know, that's something that always held me back is that they would have to live with that. And no matter how much I hated myself, I didn't want to do that to them. And I just, I hoped that they would forgive me. Um, And uh, I just, I closed my eyes and I just tried to, try to be at peace, try to make peace with myself. Was the note that you wrote to them? Uh, The, the note four months ago was, was to them. Yes. So for this time, you didn't write a note? I didn't write a note. Hmm. Why not? I think uh, my, my brain just said, you know, if, if you write a note, if you, if you raise red flags, that you're going to convince yourself to stop at some point. You know, the, the seriousness and the reality of the situation will actually hit you instead of just riding this, this wave of fear and guilt and self-hatred and saying, just, just if I don't think about it and I just take the pills and it's just, just stop over. If I think about it, then I'll stop. So I'm just not going to think about the ramifications on other people. I'm just going to do this. So then you fall asleep. I fall asleep. And then six hours later, I wake up. What was that like? That is still the most surreal experience of my life and my first thought was fuck I managed to screw up my suicide attempt this is this is and I then my second thought was well I've been talking about my suicide note on stage and it's been getting great response so the second thought in my in my head was actually was literally well at least you got more suicide material. And then the third thought was, uh, I need help. And uh, I called my therapist. And actually, I tried. No, that's not true. I tried to start to try and cover it up. I called my job. And I said, I'm sorry I didn't come into work today. I had suicidal thoughts. Um, and I'm fine. Now, mind you, my speech is slurred. Uh, I started smoking pot after I woke up, too. Uh, so I'm stoned, and I'm, you know... Just... Why, why did you reach for the pot? Oh, well, I, I, knew, I knew what was going to happen, which was I was going to end up going to a, a hospital, and most likely I was going to get checked into a psych ward. 
my I, I'm smart enough to to know that. And so my user brain says, well, if I'm going to do that, there's no way I'm not going to finish the rest of the sour diesel that I paid good money for. And also, just to minimize the situation. Yeah. You know, to if I sm- to dull it exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I called my boss up, and he's this great, great guy, and he says. You know, all I need from you is a, a note from your therapist that says you're, you're okay and able to come back to work. And so I, I said, okay, boss, you got it. Hang up. Call my therapist and say, uh, I don't need you to ask any questions. I just need a note from you that says I'm mentally, my faculties are, are okay. Uh, I, I'm good to work. You just need to give me a note that says I'm good to go to work. Don't ask me any questions, professional therapist. Yes, yes, which uh, oddly enough raised some red flags with her. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, what are you on? What happened? And I just, I gave up. I said, I, I took all the pills that I hoarded and she called my psychiatrist my psychiatrist, I, so it was this weird phone tag with them for about 15 minutes where they said, you need to go to a hospital. If you don't, we're going to call an ambulance. And uh, I said, I'm going right now. And I stayed. And once again, I was just trying to finish my pot because I knew I most likely wasn't going to be able to do it again uh, when I came out. And then uh, about 15 minutes passed and I hear a knock on my door and it's two of New York's finest. And they, I open up the door and I just put on my best game face and they go, we're here for the suicide attempt. And I go, gentlemen, wonderful to see you. Uh, I'm the only one here. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I reek like pot and I'm probably slurring my speech, but for, they believe me. And they go, well, do you have any idea, you know, is it another apartment? And I said, well, you might want to check on the, the first floor. And there's some guys down there, you know, that are they play music. And so, you know, those artist types. And so they went downstairs and then they eventually went outside. And the reason I lied to them was because I had to pay out of pocket for an ambulance ride before. And it was a thousand dollars. And so I said, well, I'm going to. So I said, I'm not going to do that. I will somehow make it to a hospital in my cra- <laughs> this crazy mindset that I had. So I smoked one more bowl, and I looked outside, and I kept waiting. And once I saw that they, the cops weren't looking my direction, I ran down the stairs, ran to the G, and somehow I, it took me seven attempts trying to swipe my card the right way, and somebody had to help me. To get on the subway. Yeah, and I had used my app, my, you know, the app on my phone to uh, Mount Sinai was the closest one. And so I'm just in this boggled mind state, just the foggiest mind state I've ever been in. And somehow I transferred to, to, to the L and uh, I checked myself in there and they, uh, they didn't pump my stomach, which was very odd to me. They said that it had been so long that it had metabolized by mm, now. Nothing to pump out. Yet. Yeah, nothing yeah. to pump out. And so I spent two hours, and then, then I realized that, yeah, they took away my phone. I'm like, okay, they're going to put me in the psych ward. Involuntary commitment. Yes, involuntary commitment. And then what happened? And then they put me in the psych ward. I, I, uh, I got checked in. I had to wait about six to eight hours in a, in a holding unit with 
people that were screaming and it was really cold, not a fun experience. Uh, and then they brought me up to, I think it was the eighth floor uh, for the Mount Sinai psych ward. And they took away my, my, my sh shoelaces and my, my regular clothes. They took away everything I had and I got a green jumpsuit and uh, got a bed and uh, you know there are no locks on the doors there. There are no. There's nothing metal, so you can't cut anyone or yourself. After you woke up, and before you got checked into the hospital, there's a lot of ways you could have killed yourself between there, there and the hospital. You could have jumped off the building. You could have jumped in front of a train. Why didn't you? That's that's a really good question. Um, and what, what I do keep coming back to in my life that I live now is that I don't know why I lived, but there has to be some reason. And the, the fact that I woke up after, after that attempt, and then there's also, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's like, well, I, I screwed up that, you know, if I jump off the building, someone, there's going to be somebody walking along with a trampoline. Like I just, I will mess it up. Um, but also, yeah, deep down, you know, I, I, like I said, I was, I was ignoring any voices that were saying, or any part of my mind that was saying, you, you should live, you need to live, you want to live. If not for you, do it for your family for right now. Think about what you're going to do to others. Um, and so when I came to, you know, there was some semblance of some part of reality was saying, Hey, you do want to live deep down deep, deep down underneath all this hate that you've buried and denied for so long, there, there is, there's that and there's something higher. There's so, something with the universe is at play here. What did the doctors say when you told them how much you had taken and survived? They told me unequivocally that I should have died. How did that make you feel? It made me... It just keeps going back to that same question is that, that I, I shouldn't be here, but I am. And so there's, there's a reason for that. And being in the psych ward the first two days, I was trying to, you know, I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad. And I love the idea that they write these shows with these scenarios that are impossible to break out of. And then they work their way, their way backwards from them. And so I'm saying, what, what would Walter White do in this situation? And trying to figure out how to escape. Somehow. That's always a healthy question to ask yourself. <laughs> what would Heisenberg do? <laughs> what would one of the most horrible characters in television do in this situation? Were you trying to escape from it? Were you trying to get out of it? I was actively trying to, uh, trying to figure out how I could. Um, but after, after two days, I surrendered. I, I, you know, there's only so long that... Uh, you can bullshit yourself. How long were you in the hospital? I was in the psych ward for 12 days. And um, I, in retrospect, I'm so happy I was there. I probably would have tried to hurt myself again. Um, or I definitely would have started using hardcore substances again. That was That was in the back of my mind, too, was, well, maybe I should try and figure out where I can cop some heroin and, you know, get enough that I know I won't wake up from that. Um, 
and being in the psych ward, I realized um, I started for the first time in, in my entire life uh, saying, I, I want to live, I have value, I deep down actually do love myself, and I'm here for some purpose, and I, do, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's been made abundantly clear to me from, from doctors, from my attempts, from previous times when I took so many drugs that I, I, I should have overdosed. Uh, I'm here for some reason, and, and ultimately, I deserve happiness. Sam wrote about all of this a couple months later in an essay on Medium.com entitled Dying to Live. It's a painful read, but it also feels like a man being relieved of a tremendous weight. Sam says he's had no pot since this all went down. He's in recovery for that. He's had no alcohol, no other drugs, and he's been working harder than ever at his comedy. And he's trying to use everything he's learned since that day in May. I, I was really depressed the last two days, and that's the thing was I hit this milestone and I thought I was going to be really happy. And then, you know, I still get depressed. I, I was really, really depressed the last two days. And then I didn't use the stuff that I've been taught and have been utilizing over the past couple of months. The techniques. The techniques, which primarily it's getting out of my head. And so I do that by, by texting people, by calling people, by literally getting just out of my apartment gets me out of my head more than anything else. Going for a walk, doing self-care. All the things that drugs used to do for you. Exactly. You know, just listening to music, getting a smoothie, watching a movie. Have you figured out what that purpose is that you keep talking about of why you're still alive? The, the closest that I can get to is that, you know, you had mentioned I, I've had the piece on Medium about the suicide attempt, and then I also have one about the suicide note, which was uh, a funny thing happened while I was typing my suicide note, which was I, for 20 minutes I was trying to figure out what the appropriate font was for a suicide note. Which is Comic Sans. <laughs> That's what many people it seems to be the consensus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so when I published both of those, I got overwhelmed with uh, my inbox uh, from emails and my my direct message on Twitter is open, and uh, from people who either directly have have depression and, and substance abuse problems or have lost a family member to it. Um, but the thing that really has hit home, and I guess I'll, I'll talk about this publicly for the first time, is that after the, I published the, the suicide note essay, I, the very next morning, got an email from a gentleman who was 17 years old in Arizona who told me that he was going to kill himself that night and that he had read my essay, and that the essay moved him enough that he told his parents what he was suffering from. And, and uh, excuse me, um, and he ended up getting help, and he, uh, he's healthy today, and he's sober, 
and he is he has a therapist that he sees on a regular basis and i've received four more emails like that and i i don't care what i do with the rest of my life that's more than i could have, i'm sorry that's that's more than i could have ever hoped to do with my life Sam is saddled with this addict's brain. That's just the brain that he got. That's why addicts never say, I'm cured. They say, I'm recovering. Ing, gerund, currently in process. It's why addicts say, I won't drink today, because tomorrow is going to be a decision made at that time. Sam says he has hard days, but a lot of good days as well. As for what's next, he's working on some book ideas with a literary agent, and he's going on stage to get that original high, telling jokes. Um, my favorite thing to do now is to talk about suicide on stage um, in a way that certainly doesn't romanticize it, but, uh, but destigmatizes it. The fact that I'm able to talk about a subject that is still, there are very few subjects that are taboo that are left in our culture. And mental health is mental health and, and uh, being addicted to substances and alcohol, I think, are the, the two biggest ones. And being able to talk about those on stage and make people laugh while thinking about it is, is just a, an amazing, amazing feeling and, and thing to do. I feel like I'm, I'm doing service. Here's Sam in October of 2016. <laughs> And uh, so then I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to kill myself. And I was like, oh, fuck, I haven't done the dishes in a week. Like, if my roommates <laughs> discover me, they're going to be like, on top of the dishes, he can't make up after himself. Who is this fucking guy? Fuck this. And so then I, I went on to Orbitz. <laughs> and, uh, well, actually, before that, I went to go and print out my, this is true, I went to print out my suicide note. The printer cartridge died as I'm printing it out. And I was like, that's so selfish. <laughs> and the irony was completely lost. So I went to Best Buy, I got a new cartridge, and I come back and I print out the notes, it's all legible, and it's in Comic Sans, and, um, and uh, I go into Orbitz and I'm like, you know, where, where should I kill myself? I'm like, well, you only get to kill yourself once, Sam, so why don't you treat yourself, huh? And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill myself with the Waldorf Astoria. And then I looked at my bank account and I realized that I couldn't afford to kill myself with the Waldorf Astoria. And so I did more research and I found out the best I could do was the Holiday Inn Express in Queens. And that just made me more depressed, but in a different way. Do you work for Holiday Inn Express or are you just Red Roof people? I don't know what's going on over here. Queens. Oh, Queens. Is that a good place to kill yourself just out of curiosity? Yes. <laughs> the more you know. We're learning here. Um, so I uh, ended up having a friend, I called a friend, and I decided that I would rather die on stage than kill myself. So that's the end of that story. Um, so yay for me not killing myself. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Chrissy Pease is our producer. Our executive producer is Kate Moose. Special thanks to Jonathan Blakely. We got engineering help from Brad Fisher. Our technical director is Corey Shreppel. 
Our theme song, Pagliacci, was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. You should listen to all of Rhett's music that you can because it is great. RhettMiller.com. If you need immediate help, confidential help is available for free. Call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. That's a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about mental illness can be awkward. It can be difficult. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. Visit MakeItOK.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Next week, legendary talk show host Dick Cavett tells us about some unexpected treatments for depression that he was recommended in college. I went to the Yale Infirmary where a nice lady who seemed like a kind of friendly librarian suggested that I walk more and use an oral B40 toothbrush. <laughs> so I was in expert hands. I'm John Moe. Bye now. says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm payachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Thanks for Asking is a new podcast that wants to know the honest answers that people really have to that question, how are you? Because we all say fine, even when we're not fine, and we're often not fine. Each week, host Nora McInerney shares a story of someone who's gone through something, someone who's had reason to say that actually they're terrible. Thanks for asking. My stepmom called and she said, Michael's gone. And I was like, what do you mean Michael's gone? Everything was fine. But I just remember that that's what I did. Like I danced in my apartment as someone waited to hurt me. I asked the Lord every day to forgive me for wanting something bad to happen because I, as a Christian, shouldn't want that. But as a human, I do. How come some made it, some didn't? It hurts, it really does. Is there anything that makes that go away at all? No, man, not at all. Terrible Thanks for Asking talks about hard stuff, but also about where you can find humor and kindness because we're complicated. We all contain multitudes, even when it hurts. You can find Terrible Thanks for Asking at ttfa.org or wherever you get your podcasts.